I know there's a few of you I haven't met yet. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead teaching pastor. Excited to teach today. It's a real cool passage, I think. It's hard to preach. It's fun to read, though. It's going to be in Psalm 6. So if you have a Bible or device you're using, go ahead and flip over to Psalm 6. We're still moving through a series on the book of Psalms where we're walking through different kinds of Psalms and this series called Anthem. It's been a fun series for me. It's one of my favorite series. And I think one of the reasons I've enjoyed this more than most is because of how, the, how real the emotions seem to feel. I mean, they, these guys, these poets, they did not polish any of the jagged edges out at all. They left all the grit inside of their expressions and their emotions. And they just kind of put it in prose and they hand it to you in all of its complexities and we get to read it and resonate with it, and take it seriously. Just as I said last week, I think the book of Psalms is a case of art imitating life because they do two things primarily for you and me. They express how you feel, but then they also form how you feel. The Bible's really good at creating not just better thinkers that walk around thinking all the time, but better feelers where we are healthier and even more gospel-centered in how we feel. And One of the things I think I love most about the book of Psalms is how complicated the emotions can sound. I mean, we're complicated people. We're complicated people, and so this should make total sense. I mean, take just the emotions you feel, for instance, just for a moment, right? You don't feel one motion, emotion at a time. It's not like it comes in some linear fashion where they're all lined up. It's not like you feel angry and then nothing else, or you feel happy with nothing attached to it. All of your emotions are really layered versions and shades of different kinds of emotions. I mean, the first thing I think of whenever I, 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 I talk like that are those, those Pantone color swatches. I mean, if I see artists, interior decorators, graphic artists, they all carry them. It's like, a, it's like a, an index of colors. Every shade of every primary color, any color imaginable is there. In fact, uh, you can go down the paint aisle at Lowe's and see a whole wall where all it is is just different kinds of colors, 38 whites, right? And they all have a cute little name like pixie dust for this white and icicle for this white. You have 92 yellows and they're all a little bit different. You can take those home and put them up against your wall and decide if that's how you want the entire wall to look, right? We have an infinite amount of shades to our primary emotions, right? And we can mix them without even thinking about it. We could change them just as quick. I mean, consider how you feel sad, but sometimes that sadness is mixed with joy. I know that sounds weird, but have you ever been to a funeral? Right, a funeral with somebody that you love, somebody that loved Jesus. You're super sad. You're not going to get to share more moments with them. You're sad because you won't get to see them anymore but you're actually joyful because they're with Jesus now and you knew that if they even had a choice whether they would come back or stay where they're at, they wouldn't come back. They're happy. They're happy. They're in a, what we say, better place. So it's an odd emotion that we have at funerals. It's sadness mixed with joy sometimes, right? Or consider anger when it's mixed with anticipation. You watch the news and you see an injustice kind of float across the screen and you're ticked. You're mad because of the injustice that's happening. But there's, there's a scent of anticipation because you can't wait for Jesus to come back and fix it all, right? For him to set it all straight. For him to make it right. Or how about fury mixed with confusion? 
A question mark mixed with an exclamation mark, I guess. When you have fury, when you feel oppressed and you feel attacked, you have confusion because you can't see God in any of it. You don't know where he's at, you don't know what he's doing. I think especially nuanced and complicated is something that we're going to read in today's psalm. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 6. We're going to read it all the way through, and then we'll probably slow walk through just the first part of it. This is a psalm of David. This is very helpful for us. It's going to show us Christ much more clearly today. And our psalmist and David says this, verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Now that's a certain kind of something right there. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I think especially complicated is when we're languishing, as it says in this psalm, right? And I think also where this psalm has been helpful for people like me, maybe you are like me, where we grew up not really knowing how to interpret God's discipline, What's the difference between God's discipline and a punishment? And, and when God does discipline us, how are we supposed to read that? What does that say about how he sees us? Because you probably grew up just like I grew up, and we're not going to be any different. I grew up thinking that if something bad happened to me, that it was some payback, some punishment for something that I had done wrong, Right? So if I'm suffering some sort of a loss, that's because of a past failure. If I'm getting to celebrate some kind of a win, it's because of a past win or some sort of obedience or well-behaved day or two that I had. And I think this makes sense to most people, this give and this take. I'm pretty sure this is what we're all born into this world thinking. Deeds repaid. It's actually karma. Think about it. That's the very definition of karma. You get what you give. If you do something, it will be done back to you. People are born naturally understanding karma. We don't have to be taught that. What's foreign to us is God's grace. Now, God's grace, that's something new. That's actually something that requires the Holy Spirit for us to understand, right? But it's foreign. We have to constantly remind ourselves of what grace is because it is the opposite of karma. When you look at the gospel story, what is it if it's not a story of us not getting what we do deserve and getting what we don't deserve? It's the very opposite. If we take the gospel of grace out of our walks today, then what we have is probably more of a functional Buddhism than it is a Christianity. And I think there's going to be a lot of Christians that are worshiping the Lord today in various sanctuaries and churches all across the fruited plain that they're expecting God to deliver something good to them based on their own good deeds. And if they have some sort of a suffering, they're going to get ticked off because they don't believe that they deserve it. But that's not really Christianity. It's more karma. It's a functional Buddhism. You know, I was listening to a playlist the other day when I was just 
in downtime, just like you do, we probably have some of the same playlists, right? No one really buys music anymore. We just have a playlist set up with something, some service. And I remember hearing a song, and I remember thinking, you know what, this band, a lot of their lyrics are starting to sound like that. Like, I'm noticing an overarching theme course through this band's work or this band. So I did a little bit of investigation, and I was actually shocked to, to, to find out what I found out. These are some bands I'm going to want you to remember. Arcade Fire, Panic at the Disco, The Killers, Neon Trees, and Imagine Dragons. You, take, you put those five bands together. Some of you are like, I've never heard of any of those, right? And some of you, you own all of their music, right? But if you were to take all of those bands and put them together, it sweeps across the middle of mainstream music today for, for most people under the age of 30. I'll just say it that way, right? Five pretty big bands. The lead singer and the co-founder for all five of those bands grew up Mormon. Grew up Mormon. Whether they're in the Mormon church today or not, that's how they grew up. You're all like, yeah, but not Imagine Dragons, right? No, they did. They grew up Mormon. Panic at the Disco grew up Mormon. Arcade Fire grew up Mormon. This is why you might have noticed as you listen to their music how it orbits and gets close to a spiritual theme sometimes or a karmic view of reality that you get what you give, right? See, this is the way they were brought up. And it's a natural way to think. And they borrowed this worldview. They put it into their own lyrics. They match those lyrics with really catchy music. We listen to it. We resonate with both the music and, to be honest, some of the lyrics. And we just kind of make it our own, right? And if you read a lot of the interviews that those lead singers and band founders have done in the past, you'll find out that that's exactly what they've done. You see, this idea of karma, it resonates more with the average person than the idea of grace, even though grace is very good news. And I think this is where this psalm is going to be very helpful for us. And one of the interesting things about Psalm 6 is there's movement to it. There's, there's motion to it that if you are not careful, you can read and think that David is kind of unhinged or he's a little bit crazy. Because he starts off with this alarming, I guess, complaint. And then he shifts gears and then gets into this weeping and petition. And then he shifts gears again in a very short amount of time, and it's this, this defiant, bold statement of faith. He's all over the place, right? But isn't this how it is for us? I mean, he's feeling all of this at the same time. Faith, but alarm. Petition, but confidence. He's feeling it all at the same time. He probably doesn't even know exactly how to describe exactly how he's feeling. But isn't that also average? I mean, don't we as average people have a very difficult time just describing how we're feeling? I mean, this is why you've had hard conversations with people that are in real difficult places. They're under a lot of strain or pressure, and it just seems like they're all over the map. They're laughing in one minute, the very next minute they're crying, then they're cutting a joke 10 minutes later, and then they're really, really sad two days later. It feels like they're just unhinged. They're all over the place. They're just normal. That's just how we all are. They're not crazy. Trying to locate exactly what you're feeling at any given moment, that's about as successful as nailing jello to the wall. It's just never going to happen. We're a flurry of emotions all at the same day. Even on a good day, we can be like this. Even on a good day. Here's proof. Consider the word frustrated, which we all love to use so much, right? How are you feeling? Frustrated. It's, the, it's become the drip pan of all negative feelings and emotions, right? Just everything, the lowest common denominator. You could be mad, bitter, furious, angry, bored, intolerant, depressed. 
And you can just throw the word frustrated out there. How are you doing? Frustrated. How are you doing? I'm happy. Happy's just as bad. Happy for why? Happy because you're, thank- you're thankful, you're appreciative, you're, you're joyful. Why happy? We have a hard time, so what we do is we reduce all the shades of how we feel down to the primary colors. That's what frustrated is. It's a primary color. Now, why is all this so important, right? Knowing exactly what kind of emotions we're having. Why is that even relevant for us? It's because how you emote tells you not how you feel about the people around you or the broken moments around you. They inform you of how you see God. Your emotions tell you how you see God. It has very little to do with the horizontal arrangements around you, whether it's a man or a moment. It has everything to do with the vertical arrangement you have. So, for instance, if I am up all night because I'm nauseous and I'm twisting and turning um, because my finances are upside down or I've got a bad report about money, not that this has ever happened to me. I just heard that it happens to people, right? <laughs> you, maybe you're like me. But, but for serious, it happens to all of us. You're up all night. You're nervous. What does that tell you? Are you nervous about your money? Or are you nervous that God is going to drop you? That he's forgotten you? That he's not going to help you? He's not going to save you? He does for other people, but not for you. That's where anxiety comes from, right? so, So whenever you have this languishing soul, it's not telling you very much about the rows and the columns on your bank statement. It's telling you everything you need to know about how you see God. Or the bitterness that you feel. Whenever you see on Facebook that something happened with some friends that you weren't invited into, right? And you're thinking, man, I didn't even know that that was happening. And so you feel bitter, capital B, right? Now, that tells you a little bit about how you feel about your friends, for sure. But it tells you more about how you see God and how good he is to you. That's what that bitterness can do. See, there's nothing inherently wrong with an emotion, even anger. Feeling angry, not a sin. It's not a sin to feel angry. Now, our emotions can carry us into a place where we are most definitely sinning. But our emotions, the same ones, can actually carry us into a place where we find ourselves worshiping, right? Worshiping. This is important that you are able to make that distinction as well. I mean, we'll take this psalm as an example, this Psalm 6, to kind of put, put some skin to what we're talking about. David is writing what's called a penitential lament. That's the technical word for this psalm. It's important because there's only seven of them. There's only seven penitential psalms out of all 150. Penitential just means the need for repentance, right? You kind of catch that in the first little blurb, first sentence or two. You kind of see that that's what's happening. But it's also a lament because he's feeling two things, a life-threatening illness, a very threatening illness, and he's got enemies that are seeking to do him evil. So he's struggling, but he doesn't know exactly where to point the finger. He just wants to struggle gone, right? And you know this feeling. I know this feeling. When you feel heavy and depressed and it's Tuesday and the money's already out and the car is broken and your neighbor's a jerk, but not more of a jerk than your boss, right? And so you're going through just normal Tuesday stuff and you're struggling, but then you're also holding on to a sin. You're not really willing to let that go. So you feel like maybe God's disciplining you, but you know you're being attacked You just don't really know what's going on. How much of this is God? How much is this just my neighbor being a jerk? And so what do you do? You just pray that God would lift it all. That he would just take it. This is what he's doing. This is where we find David. 
Some of David's trial is literally God's discipline on him. We know that because he's asking not to be rebuked. There is an awareness that there is sin in his life. That's why they call this a penitential psalm. So he's appealing to the grace of God to temper down the discipline that he actually knows that he deserves. But then also some of David's trial are enemies attacking him. So it's mixed, like life, like what we all understand. This is a realistic psalm. He's feeling pressure both from heaven and from hell today. He's not sure what to do. He just wants it all gone. Consider how many times, consider how many times you have felt the effects of broken creation on you, whether it's broken man doing something in the form of attack or a broken moment, something coming apart like your finances, right? And because of the brokenness around you, what you feel like is a sin committed against you, you in turn flip over and sin. And it could be getting drunk on Netflix. It could be whatever substance you can get your hands on. It could be anything to medicate. It could be a sin. You could be retaliating against people that you feel like are attacking you. You could be spreading slander. You could be doing all kinds of stuff, right? So now there's sin going in two different directions. There's sin coming at you, and you're definitely sinning against other people, right? You see, many times discipline, which is God's love towards us, which we're going to talk about a little bit more distinctly here, many times discipline, which is God's love towards us, is commingled with the attack that we just feel by being in a broken place. They're together a lot of times, at the same time and place. And a lot of times we're going to be trying to figure out if we brought on this mess, if 20% of this is God, if 80% of this is God, if, if it's mostly people attacking me, am I doing something? This is what we're going to be a lot of times, but most of the time just hoping God takes it away, just takes the pain away. Now, what's interesting is David is begging for God to lift the affliction, but he's not pleading his innocence. He's pleading God's grace. He's pleading God's grace. David knows that God's essential nature is to be good and merciful. He knows at the end of the day, all the stuff we don't know about God, one thing we do know, essentially he's merciful and he's good. And he's graceful and he's loving. And so David falls back and trusts the very character of God. Right? Look at Exodus 34. This would be a passage that David would have had access to. And this is God describing his nature, really. It'll be up on the screen, so stay where you're at. But Exodus, Exodus 34, I'm going to go in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, or, yeah, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So this is what David's exposed to, and he knows what we know. You read something like that, and you know, hey, if God's angry right now, he didn't get there quickly. He's slow to anger. He says it in several places. If God's angry right now, it's not like he got from zero to 60 really quick when it comes to his anger. We also know that if he's merciful and gracious, it's to people who didn't deserve it. We didn't, we didn't earn that, right? So he's got his character before him. And David is saying virtually, I'm not sure what complexion all of this problem is on me. If it's 80% what I brought on myself, if it's 80% the Lord 
you know, disciplining me. Maybe it's 80% people just being turds and attacking me and I just need to rebuke it or I, I don't know what's going on. I just, Lord, I just want you to take it away. Just make the bleeding stop. Just lift it. It's not out of your realm. It's part of your character. That much I do know. This is where we find him. But let's walk through it again because we're going to see some really cool, helpful things in here. Look at verses 1 through 3. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, my soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Okay, we get to see some poetry here that describes the interaction between the body and the soul whenever it's under great pressure. This is fascinating to me because it's only been in the last century that science has been able to conclusively show that there even is a connection between a languishing soul and a languishing body. But this is 3,000 years old, right? Science is just now catching pace. He says, my bones are in agony. That's physical pain. Anytime you see bones in something like this part of the Old Testament, it's talking about our frame, our structure, our physical being. But then he follows it up with, my soul is in deep anguish. That's emotional pain right? Emotional pain, physical pain. The body and the soul are falling apart together. I will contend they're even ripping each other apart. They're even ripping each other apart. Science has now shown that felt stress is damaging to the physical health of any person and can even kill you. And here's something you might not know. Emotional stressors are harder on your body than physical stressors are. Meaning, It would be easier for you to chop down a bunch of trees. It'd be easier for you to go to the gym, run a marathon, than it is to take a certain phone call or to get certain news. Now, that could do damage to you, right? I mean, consider that in Japan, their labor department started in the 60s of how many people are dying at work. It's, it's a phenomenon called Kiroshi, K-A-R-O-S-H-I, Kiroshi. What it means is death by overwork. They have so many people dying at work that they keep statistics on it. We don't do that in America. If we did, I'm pretty sure we could be competitive with Japan. But what was happening is, is they were coming in on Monday morning, and they would find Jack never left a cubicle. He's dead over there. His head's down, packs, stacks of paper, computer still on. He's dead. He's dead. And this was happening so much, they had to start keeping, keeping number. And not just any work, but stressful work with deadlines attached to it and heavy emotional energy poured into it. Emotional stress in your life is harder on your body than physical stress. It's the languishing soul ripping the body apart. So when you're languishing and you're under intense load, your body is going to wear that. It's going to assimilate that. That's why introverts are so wiped out at the end of the day, full of people. I just got done talking to some people around this, um, around the corner. We did a class this morning talking about how, for, for me as an introvert, it's really difficult for me to do solid people, right, all the time. And so Sundays, I'll just be honest as a pastor from the stage, Sundays are tough for me. Not because this is tough. I could do this all day. What's tough for me is you. You make it all tough on me, Right? I love you so much, five minutes with you, and then six minutes with you, and then 10 minutes with you, and then back to you. It is so much people interaction for an introvert that at the end of the day, I just want to watch paint dry, right? Pixie dust white on the wall, I'm fine with it, right? It's not like I was out branding cattle all day long in the sun, 
or some CrossFit tournament. It's not like I did anything physical to make me feel that way. It's the emotional. It's the emotional strain, right? It's why all of us, we can get through an emotional disaster or a drama or a tragedy and just feel cratered for days, even weeks on end, right? Just feel upside down. The residue of emotional stress, it just hangs on. We wear it, right? This is why some of you are sick all the time, too, by the way. Different sermon. It's why some of us, we can't sleep. It's why we can't lose weight. It's why we can't find our sex drive. We can't be creative anymore. We can't be motivated anymore when the soul languishes, the body wears it. And this happens whether we're aware of it or not, because I just want you to think about it for a moment. Consider when you have great ache and languishing of the soul because of something that you're doing, a sin. You're just not really willing to let go of it right now. It's still serving you, you think. So you're hugging it. You're not really willing to let that go. It's a sin, an active, pervasive sin, right? I want you to imagine how you feel when you've got that going on. Now I want you to consider the great ache of the soul and the languishing body because of something done to you outside of your control, an attack. Now I want you to imagine both going on at the same time. You don't have to work very hard to imagine that, do you? It's like every day. That's where David's at. This is where David is coming from. And he's falling apart, and he just wants God to show mercy and stop the bleeding. And this is where God's character comes into view for so many. When we languish and our bones and our soul feel like they're coming unravel, that's when we take a good, hard look at God. Right? Because when we're disciplined or attacked, our temptation is not to do what David's doing here, to fall upon the grace and the mercy and the true character of God. Our temptation is to turn and rebuke him back. If he's, going to dis- if he's going to discipline us, if he's going to swing on me, I'm going to swing back. It's an easy temptation. If we think that God's being heavy-handed with his discipline, right? If, if, we, think that he, if we see God as some tyrant, like a toddler stomping around with a, with a paddle and he's just swinging it everywhere, it's going to be an easy temptation for us to say, if you do that, I'm going to do this. So we don't let God rebuke us without us getting him back. It's the ultimate form of rebellion. We're actually very good at this. And we know that we're good at this because we do it to each other. I mean, consider the silent treatment for a moment. The silent, the good old silent treatment. We all know what it is. We punish the other party by being indifferent towards them. That's actually worse than being angry with them too, by the way. To treat them as if they don't exist to treat them as if their presence, their existence is of zero value to you is worse than just being mad at them or just screaming at them. I mean, in the silent treatment, it's unique in the fact that we can be fully present, fully absent at the same time. It's different. I mean, just ask any decaying marriage where both people have just decided we are no longer going to build and nurture and enrich. We're just going to coexist and partner, right? That's what it looks like. So what happens when we disagree with God's treatment of us? We give him the silent treatment a lot of times. Think about it. We won't leave him, but we're not going to build with him. We're not going to nurture anything with him. We're just going to tolerate it. Listen, this is a big room. Some of us, we walked in here just royally ticked off at God today, just mad at God. But you're here. The Sunday morning finds you here, right? You'll show up, but building intimacy with the Lord, nurturing a growing relationship, that's going to be a tall order for you today, isn't it? I think we understand the silent treatment, right? We struggle 
because we see God's discipline as being cruel and punitive. We struggle with that. And so we punish him back by ignoring him. I find this most common when people have lost something great, like kids or a spouse or limbs or a job or some huge tragedy that has come along. They feel this emotion come up, this heavy emotion that's really there to lead them towards worship, but they forget God's character. They don't reflect on it like David's doing right here. And so their emotions aren't wrong, but they see God wrongly, and they end up in a place of sin. Some of us, we're not really big on silent treatment stuff. We're more of the tantrum flavor, right? So we throw things and we turn on God, not just by being silent, but by running as fast as we can into the very thing that we think is going to get the man, right? Oh, you're going to do that to me? I'm going to stick it to the man. I'm just going to double down on the sin that I was doing. After all, you forced me to it. I think some of us in this room are struggling with a, the with a more flagrant or vindictive variety of this, like I'm describing now, this tantrum kind, right? We walk in here, we're all ticked off because of something that God is doing to us. And so we just say to ourselves, if he's going to handle me this way, then I'm going to fill in the blank. After all, I wouldn't have to do it if he didn't do this to me. God, if you didn't do this to me, I wouldn't have to turn to these things. It's really your fault when you think about it. You know, I'm almost sure that when we see all the statistics regarding the Duns, the 40-plus percent of Knox metro area that is totally done with the idea of God, church, spirituality, all of it, whether they're throwing a tantrum, whether they're giving God the silent treatment, I think you could almost ask all of them, who did God take from you? What did God take from you? They're responding. They might be throwing things, they might be totally silent, but they're responding. I think we throw a fit because we forget God's character. Our emotion at being angry, upset, scared, it's not wrong, but I think we see God wrongly, like I said. You see, we just don't react very well whenever our bones and our souls dry up. If we think God is being a tyrant with us, we just don't react well. All right, look what happens next with David. Look in verse four. This will help put some skin on it. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Okay. Pause right there, because you can see that depression and exhaustion, they've run their course. They're complete. David's beyond the place of quippy advice right now. Self-help, it's all gone. Even the things that used to get him excited aren't exciting anymore. He's finding things like prayer hard. (laughs) This is David. He's written a bunch of psalms. Prayer is hard for him. I mean, the old David, if if he would get some enemies and he could see those enemies, it it would energize him a little bit. He had this chip on his shoulder like, that's what you brought? Well, okay. And now he's crumbling under the weight of these adversaries around him. He's not even the same David we recognize. He's doing a real bad impersonation of himself. He can't save himself. And he's petitioning God to fix it, not based on his behavior, but again on God's character. He's petitioning God on his character. So here's the big question for you. What did you carry in here? What did you carry in here? Why are you ticked off with God? I know it sounds like an odd question, and at face value, you're going to have a hard time with an answer. You're likely going to say, but I'm not ticked off with God. Let me make it more palatable. 
How has God been careless with you? How has he been unfair with you? I mean, come on, let's, why are we ticked off with God? Why are we upset? Are you tempted to give him the silent treatment because of it? Because of how your personality is set up, right? Here's a tell, if you know that's the case, by the way. Your relationship and your intimacy with the Lord, it just hasn't been moving. The needle's not moving because you're just not really that interested in it. You'll check all the boxes, but you're not interested in growing a relationship with this kind of a God. Are you tempted maybe to pitch a fit instead? And you'll be able to tell that by your, the, the, the ease of embracing anything that gives you what you think God is taking from you. Embrace anything, right? I mean, ultimately, how are we doing with God's discipline? Not punishment, but discipline. See, there's a big difference between punishment and discipline. I mean, if you walk into a penitentiary and you see prisoners and inmates that are there for a long sentence and they're making license plates or whatever they're doing, I'm sure they don't really do that anymore. I'm sure someone else is making license plates. But whatever they're doing, that is punitive on them. It's not discipline. There's not like a deep reservoir of love for those inmates being considered on that sentence or on that chore before them. It is punitive so that justice can be met. Discipline is what we do with our kiddos, right? It's going to be different. Now, it sounds like it's just semantics, but it's actually much, much more than that. In fact, I'm going to turn to Hebrews 12. You can stay where you're at unless you're really fast. But in Hebrews 12, we have probably the best description in all of the Bible of what discipline is and how God sees it. I'm going to jump into verse 5. And have you forgotten, the author says, the exhortation that addresses you as sons or sons and daughters, okay? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. How do we know that? Well, David's not enjoying it very much. Psalm 6. For, all the, for, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, when we are disciplined, we just feel heaviness. And it's just going to be real easy for us to spin around on it and say, God's punishing me. This is punishment. I'm being punishment. Not the same thing. He's not paying you back for something you did. He's disciplining you as a child, as someone sitting at the royal table, as someone that he loves and showed us by coming, living, dying, and living again how much he really does love us. A discipline is proof of it. But we have a temptation whenever we're disciplined, and that temptation is that we don't, we don't see ourselves as family anymore. I mean, some of us grew up in households where you'd get disciplined by your parents, and then you'd feel like you needed to leave the room. Was that ever you? They discipline you, you got whooped, got grounded, and you didn't feel like going up and curling up with mom and dad after that, did you? Felt like you needed to leave the room. Why? 
You should feel lovable in that moment. You felt like some time would need to go by before you could come back into family and be family and be loved, where your stock price would go right back to where it was, right? So we're tempted to do the same thing with the Lord, to behave our way out of a disciplinary place so that we can be loved again. So that we could be loved again. I think we imagine in our mind a reality where we can live and never be disciplined. We could live a life of no discipline whatsoever if we just do everything right, right? If we behave well. This is actually where we get the word moralism. It's a tricky word. I'm going to be very careful with it right now, but it's important. Morals are what they are. It's what you hear whenever you, this is what it is. Morals are nothing more than a person's standards or belief or idea of conduct and right and wrong. That's all it is. That's all. But if you put an ism on a word, you can wreck it real fast. We all know that, right? So you stick ism on that. Moralism is something different. That's where we use our behavior and our performance to make us lovable again. It's where we depend on it to make ourselves clean and righteous again. This is what Yuri Brandon, the lead singer for Panic at the Disco, says. He says this regarding him and one of his friends. Dan is the singer of Imagine Dragons. He says, I felt guilty the first time I cussed. I thought God was going to hit me with a lightning bolt. Dan and I are similar in that we came from this background culturally and religiously, and now we have all that to pull from. <laughs> See, you're hearing the stuff you're hearing in their lyrics because that's what they're putting in there. Lightning bolts... If you misbehave, rainbows if you don't. And if that's how you grow up, that's all you know. It's not really Christianity. It's more karma, like I said, or in our case right now, it's moralism. Now, I understand, and this is where people get in trouble whenever they talk about moralism and behavioral change. Your behavior should change. Let's just get that out there in the open. Let's say that you get caught up in a pornographic habit or something like that, okay? You could fill in the blank with whatever you feel like. But you have this sense of shame or conviction that comes over you. And by the way, if you have that shame and conviction, that is a form of God's discipline. It's his love towards you that leads you to repentance. It's a kind gesture that you would have that level of conviction. But let's just say that you feel it. And you want to change. Change means turning away from sin. It means turning towards obedience, which means what? It means you stop doing whatever you were doing. You're going to have to seek help. You're going to have to get accountability. You're going to have to change some rhythms. You're going to have to change some patterns. That's all behavior. And that's fine. That's fantastic. It's good. High five. But it's not going to make you more lovable before God. It's not going to make you more approachable. I mean, if behavior cleans you before God, then you just don't need Jesus. If your performance makes you lovable again, then the cross was really a bad idea. It just doesn't make any sense anymore. So what do we do today when we don't feel lovable anymore? And we're pretty sure there's a mixture of attack and discipline mixed in with what, what do we do with this Psalm 6 feeling in our gut? Same thing I always say that we do. We go back to the garden, right, where we see Jesus. Jesus doing what? He's being torn apart emotionally just before we tear him apart physically. He's alone. He's under attack from what feels like both heaven and hell. He's languishing. We can say that. You see, Psalm 6 is fulfilled in the fact that Christ is struggling praying to his father in the garden of Gethsemane. That's where we see the line drawn from one to the other. Jesus felt the attack of man, and he's feeling the furious wrath of the father impending upon him in that moment. Yeah, But now listen, unlike David, 
Jesus had no sin to repent from. It's not a penitential psalm for Jesus because he had no sin. But he is overwhelmed, and he has sorrow to the point of death, he says. And then he asks God to take this cup of wrath away. This is what it says. It'll be up on the screen. Just stay where you're at. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Listen, he's not one given to drama. He's not being a drama queen right here. Like, oh, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. He's not doing it. I mean, he says it's sorrowful even to death. He says, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Why? What is it about this cup that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with it for a moment? What is it? What's this cup about? If you read the Old Testament, just look backwards. Anytime you see the cup or a cup of wrath referred to, it was just a picture. It was a word picture, an image of God's wrath against sin in a vessel that could be poured over or tumped out, even down to the last drop. Okay? This is the cup that is being focused on in this moment. It's the punishment of sin, not the discipline. This is not love-minded. This is justice-oriented. Punishment, not discipline in this moment. This is punitive. So I want you to hear Jesus preaching to you and I through this psalm, Psalm 6, because he is a man of sorrow. He's well acquainted with grief, it says. David is feeling certain things in this psalm. He's flooding his place with tears. He's drenching his furniture with tears. But you've got Jesus. His capillaries are breaking. He's mixing blood in with his tears and his sweat. You have David. His eyes are wasting away. And you have Christ who says, I'm sorrowful even to death. You see, Jesus didn't have to have a penitential psalm. Because he had no need for repentance, because he had no sin to provoke it. Yet he took the punishment for all of mankind's sin. And he wasn't punished for being Jesus, he was punished for being Luke. He was punished for the stuff I've done and didn't do. And not just me, for all mankind. And he took the punishment poured out all the way to the very last drop. The cup of wrath fell over on him to the last drop, so not one drop would fall over on me. So when you hear David in this psalm say, deliver my life and save me for your own steadfastness, your own character, save me from this. Just make it stop. Make it stop. Take it away. You're also hearing Jesus say, take this cup, but only if it's your will. Only if it's your will. You hear David saying, listen, if you put me in the grave, you won't ever hear me worship you. Jesus saying, I will take that separation and it will be my worship to you. You see, this cup of wrath on Jesus means that I'll never have to experience wrath because I'm a Christian, not because I behave well. It means I'll never be unlovable in God's eyes. This is important for you. When you feel God's discipline, you don't have to leave the room. You don't have to leave the room. Your stock price never took a plunge. You were never unlovable. He loves you just as much as he did on your best day. It means you never lose value to him. It means that your behavior doesn't even make you clean before him. It means I don't have to be a moralist. I don't have to behave according to shame and fear. It means I can greet discipline as God's signature of deep love over me. Punishment landed on Jesus, so the disciplinary love lands on me. That's the arrangement. 
So when I find my bones melting and my soul cracking under the pressure and I don't even know what's going on, I can appeal to God's general character just like David did. But I have much more to look at than David does, don't I? So do you. David didn't have the atonement scene. He didn't have a cross and an empty grave before him like you do. I mean, if David got view of God's character, how much more you? How much more do you see? And this helps me. Listen, if I'm being attacked by mankind, I have a God who reminds me that I'm not at the mercy of man. And he proved it because Christ wasn't even at the mercy of man. They nailed him, they hoisted him up, and he wasn't at the mercy of mankind. If I ever feel like I'm being attacked by a broken moment, I have a God that reminds me I'm not at the mercy of a moment. Because a grave couldn't even hold a body, says the gospel. If I'm being disciplined as a disciple and a son of God, then I have God reminding me that I am loved and cherished. See, friends, you're never at the mercy of man or moment, ever, ever. When you're languishing and cracking and breaking under the weight of all that's broken and all that you do, you are never at the mercy of man or moment. And you can only look at the gospel to prove that. Okay, let's just finish this up. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going too long. Look at verse 8. This is a great place to finish as well because this is where he switches gears to being very, very triumphant, defiant even in his faith. He says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Listen, friends, he hears your plea he hears your prayer because Christ has done something unimaginable for you. Unimaginable. I mean, I, I'm, I would imagine, I'm just guessing, but if, if we could just watch David sing this, I would bet when he got to verse 8, his countenance changed. I would imagine him smiling. There's got to be something behind that. It can't just be words. Imagine he's lighting up because of the remembrance of what God has done and who he is. This torment in Psalm 6 is not driving him away from God. It's driving him straight into God. And it's reminding him of God's character. And again, we have much, much more than that. You know, we're going to be tempted to give God the silent treatment. We're going to be tempted to pitch a fit. And I think we're all going to be tempted, no matter our personality, to earn our way back into the room, to be lovable again, to be clean in his eyes again. I'm saying the gospel says we don't have to do that. Punishment has been exhausted. You don't have to confuse that with discipline anymore. No need to earn your love. No need to be a Buddhist about it. No need to give God the silent treatment or tantrums. There's a freedom in letting your grief lead you to the character of God where you see it most fully expressed on the cross and out of an empty tomb. And we have that before us. So let me pray for you that God would do ministry with you. And then we'll just, we'll finish up our service. But Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you, Lord, that that wrath that came out, that it won't fall on me. That when I've just done something stupid, or I won't quit doing something stupid, or if I've got an idol in my life, if I've just straight up declared war on you, just being a defiant, rebellious, scandalous son, if that is me against you, you will not punish me. You just gently, lovingly discipline me. And if you are angry, we know your character says you didn't rush to something like that. 
So I'm able to interpret that correctly. Your gospel interprets your discipline for us. So Lord, I know that there's people in here that are struggling because they're ticked off with you. They're ticked off or they've been disciplined to a place where they feel like they're not even lovable or clean enough to be in front of you. So moments like this are tough. Singing, communion, these are tough moments. Because we just we feel like we're not supposed to be around you. We're not clean enough yet. Or we're just mad at you. So Father, we come as a church and we put our hearts out there and we say, please pastor us and minister to us. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to change our hearts. That we would love you and enjoy you. And that we, with all of our faults and failures and cracks, crawl up into your lap and say, thank you for loving me and enjoy you. Even when we are at our worst, that we had have the freedom and the confidence and the courage to do that. And that when we petition you, it's not based on our performance, but on yours for us. And Lord, I ask even for those who walked in here ticked off, even convincing themselves that they are not because they're just so used to being perpetually ticked off at you. Lord, that you're able to help them see that that is a big, a big crack in your relationship with them, that they can't relate to you and how hungry you are to build this relationship and the price you paid and the distance you covered to do such a thing like that. So, Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit in this moment. This is ministry that words from one man to another cannot do. It's only something your Holy Spirit can do. So we depend on you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.